Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Dennis, everyone, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Same pleasure from my side to be here. And yeah, I mean, contribute and discuss about startups. Absolutely. Currently, you are the CEO at Small PDF. Uh, you're also uh, an experienced serial entrepreneur, I would describe you. And Small PDF may be a bit of a background. From my perspective, this is a real hidden champion and also PDF powerhouse here based in Switzerland. <laughs> and you're a bootstrapped success story. And we're going to talk a lot more about that today. So I think there's a very interesting story to cover. Before we talk about small PDF, I would like to talk a bit about your personal background. You started at the Technical University in Berlin, where you studied economics and engineering. And I wonder, this is a great combination, you know, the business part, but also the technical part. How has your education enabled, enabled you to launch an entrepreneurial career? Ooh, I think it's a tough question for myself. So I'm, uh, I only did a bachelor, to be frank. So uh, doing only the early, you know, first three years of these studies might not really enable you to grow as an entrepreneur or to build the basis of what you need to be an entrepreneur. So for myself, it was rather, yeah, family background slash early tries that I did for myself and maybe as well a bit of luck and having success without knowing it in the early days. Um, so I do not consider education to be the base for my entrepreneurial background, nor success, nor process or knowledge. Um, I think I'm just describing myself, I'm rather the person that built up the experience and the habits by experiencing or doing stuff. Um, right. So rather learning by doing, um, which is good and bad because you have obviously a lot of highs and a lot of lows that you go through, um, but they shape you as a person in usually a good way, sometimes <laughs> needs some time to be considered a good way. But then still the question is, why did you then decide to go to university and study? Because you already started as an entrepreneur very young and had your first big success story there. Why did you still think that it was necessary to go and study? I mean, it was so early um, and I really feel as well that, I mean, with 17, 18 years, it's, yeah. it's hard to distinguish or know what you want to do and what you want to build. And mm -hmm. as well with the discussion with, at that time, my parents and I mean, yeah. with thinking about it myself, I think it was just a very natural step after um, having the, the Abitur, so kind of the second, right. what is it, secondary school um, in Germany to do something in a university direction. Um, I just felt by, I, so I started maybe a bit to the story already. I started, I think with 16, more or less by accident, by being what you now would call an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. um, just by playing video games and then having a new site for a video game and then everything evolved to the biggest new site for that video game. And uh, suddenly you could, earn money with that, which was kind of new to me. I mean, right. obviously it's new to you if you're a 16 anyway. <laughs> um, but I think this, this brought definitely the basis. And then the, the question was, how can I improve as a person? What would be the things that bring me further? And I thought it would be university, um, but uh, I was wrong um, because the things, and even now having a hard time with that person, to be honest. So the things that you're getting taught in the university, in the marketing courses 
are very aware what you need to be successful in your future life because they still usually i would i must say because there are for sure some good studies out there usually they rely on what you know you researched 30 40 years ago and right. i mean i know about the four p's now and maybe in some parts of what we're doing as a business with small pdf or knip relates to that but to be frank it's very little <laughs> got it would you even go that far and say that these were probably three wasted years of your life no i don't think so i mean if at least if i look at my own life um I, I do not consider any position that I've done as really wasted um, because you can take learnings from all of them. Right. Um, but I let's if you turn it the other way around and if, if I look at this time in the belief that I had myself to really being a valuable time next to drinking beer and having parties in the, <laughs> on the educational side, yeah. um, I wouldn't consider it being successful. Got it. You also mentioned your family. You come from an entrepreneurial family, both your dad and also your granddad are entrepreneurs or were entrepreneurs and run their own companies. In what way has this also sort of pushed in that direction? Was there any sort of pressure where you said, hey, you also need to start your own companies because your dad, your granddad did that? I No, I don't think they pushed me or the family pressure or the peer family pressure pushed me in that direction. Um, I do believe that it had a big influence. Um, and I think that influence helped me to understand the risk that are involved in the process of either funding your own companies or, um, I mean, as now for myself with SmallPDF, which I didn't found, but involving myself as in the management or in a leadership position in grown-ups or scale-ups. Right. Um, and the, the one thing that I figured out personally is that there is no risk. But because you learn so much that you can, you will anyway jump as a person to the next level, be it with having success with that company um, in with a successful exit or whatever. Right. But at the same time, growing as a person in your experience and in your mark in your personal market value, which is way higher than when you would start at UBS on a junior analyst level and then make it to senior in the first five years. Congrats for that. But I mean, the market value is not leveraged. Right. Um, if you fund your company and you've been successful and you run it for three, four years, your market value as a person will be way higher than just being in a corporate. Have you always thought about that concept of personal market value from the beginning or when did that start? It's tough one. So I'm not even sure if I mentioned personal market value before to anyone. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how, how I got to that, but it's, I think it's something that helps me define risks better. So I'm, I'm not like the super hard capitalist and I want to have my personal market value being 10 million and above. Sure. Um, I think it doesn't make any sense, but from, it really, I think, defines on let's say it defines the opportunities that you have in the market or that you can get because you will never always be successful. And when you're not successful, you still want to do something valuable. Right. Um, and to do something valuable and to have cool opportunities, you need to have a certain market value. So I think that's the frame that I would build for myself um, and how I would describe it. So yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't say I, I looked at this the same way I look at it now from the beginning, um, but looking at my grand dad and my dad, I think it's, it somehow helped me to understand the risks involved that are, yes, financially, and it can influence your family or your personal relationship with your wife or the kid or whatever. Um, 
But economically and from an educational perspective, there's just zero risk involved in funding your own startup. I think that's a very refreshing take um, that also, you know, probably motivates more people to start their own company if they see that there's actually not that much risk involved as they might think in the beginning. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just looking a bit at my CV as well, um, I wouldn't have been able to take a vice president role at one of the largest corporations in Germany with 20, what was I, 28 or 29 without being a CEO of my own startup before, because that right. was just, I was the youngest person on that level in the whole group with 70,000 employees. Yeah. Um, so I think this is, I mean, just to give a practical um, explanation, I think this is how I would frame it. It's maybe also a bit more volatile, so you can rise much faster, but you can also fall a bit faster in, in a certain degree, right? True. <laughs> so uh, that way it can be a fast track to really boost your career uh, yeah. in a certain way uh, if you make the right decisions. Yeah, but you know, I, I think you always just have a certain amount of time for your personal career, be it entrepreneurial or non-entrepreneurial or just a leadership career, whatever you're doing. Um, and you should make use of that. Um, so I'm not sure if it's good or helpful. I mean, it, um, I think in the end it doesn't matter, but the sooner you can reach a stage in your career which makes you really happy, and lets you influence the things that you believe have impact, um, which usually are the higher career positions um, and not in the mid-level management. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the happier and the, the more comfortable you will be with that situation. That's right. And you already started pretty early with 16 years old, as you mentioned before. Uh, you were, uh, I think, also several times the, the champion of uh, Call of Duty in Germany and then started your own company, D Slash, an mm -hmm. online portal, basically. Can you talk us a bit more about how you actually started that business, that or that community that then eventually went and became a business at just 16 years old? It was, I mean, in the end, it was an accident. And I think that's how I got into the whole entrepreneurial scene. And it actually went that way that I think with 15 or 14, I started playing computer games heavily. At that time, I mean, you've had like Counter-Strike and Call of Duty were the two big ones. Um, and just for me, it happened to be Call of Duty. Um, and I, I mean, with everything that I did, and I played at the time as well, hockey in Germany, I, I tend to be rather competitive. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's intentional or unintentional, but I think it's just the way how it evolves. Um, so after three, four, yeah, I mean, months, um, I think improved myself to being a competitive player in that game, then had the chance to play or to play in a team which played for the German national championship, then had a chance to play in the team for a European championship, and then been in the national team and stuff like that. I mean, crazy things at that time. Um, and it's, you have, I mean, you have not had more than just a computer and a mouse and a fast path internet at that time, which was pretty <laughs> cool. Um, and then bring your, bring your ping down. Um, and out of this position, um, it allowed me because I had interest in the game. And uh, I mean, at that time, you haven't had teams, but clans, which are in the end, small entities that play against each other and I mean, live, make a lift of sponsors that they had. Um, and for me, it had just happened to be interesting to kind of fund and play the community a bit. Um, so I just started double slash or D slash at that time, which um, we put news on um, for the game. So who won, what were the championships? 
um, interviews. I think at that time we even had a lot of these, you know, frack movies where the yes. best kills that uh, um, that happened in that tournament were summed up in a movie, and then everybody right. watched it and was super happy if if you were in there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it grew, I think, to yeah, hundred thousand plus monthly active users, um, which still at that time, I mean, it's, it's not too big compared to what we're operating in at the moment, um, sure, to, for example, small PDF. But um, for me, as a very young person, it was superb. And then you, you had the chance to, I think it was the early days of AdSense. You installed AdSense, you had sponsors for what you're doing, and you, I made some hundred euros out of it um, a month, which was super cool because you, I mean, you kept, couldn't have imagined that to happen. Um, and it was my personal start into this whole entrepreneurship thing where I just felt, okay, if I do something that we really admire or that I believe makes sense, mm -hmm. and I think you can start from both ends, um, it will somehow create something valuable for other people as well, and potentially you can make a living out of it. Um, and I sold the company uh, at the point where I went to a university. Um, to, I think at that time, Tactical Esports League was the second biggest league behind Electronic Sports League, which is ESL and right. Turtle Entertainment, so one of the biggest players in the esport game at the moment, for some thousand euros. It was nothing, but I was super happy I could finance my studies with it, um, and that's how it all started. Why did you decide to sell it and not continue with it during your studies? I, um, so the, at that point, um, Call of Duty was uh, at a stage where I think there was Call of Duty 4 um, released, and then 5 came out. It was a really shitty game. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we relied on multiplayer gaming experience. Um, so you would have to have a competitive multiplayer game where people couldn't cheat, where there are tournaments, there's money paid out. Um, and it didn't happen to be Call of Duty 5. Um, so everything went down. I think at that point, if I recall it correctly, Battlefield 2 came out and then everybody shifted to Battlefield 2 or World of Warcraft. So the community was rather stagnating than growing. Um, and going to university, it just didn't feel right to, I mean, in the end, you train like you train for professional sport, doing sure. e-sport, yeah, to really commit four yeah. to six hours a day to yeah. training. Um, didn't want to do that. Yeah, there's a bit more to student life than, than that, yeah. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, I think that's a great start into your entrepreneurial career. I would also like to talk about the other ventures that you were involved mm -hmm. with. Um, one that then didn't work that well was Compreo.de. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a translation service. And on LinkedIn, you stated that you shut it down because the, it was too early for the market. Yeah. Can you maybe talk us a bit first of the opportunity that you saw and then also why you shut it down and what you learned from it? Yeah, so I think, I, I mean, we in the end made several mistakes doing that. Um, first one was I founded that company with my best friend. <laughs> you wouldn't recommend no, that? I wouldn't recommend why that. Not? Because Funding a company together is like marriage, yes. but the, I mean, if you have best friends and you have a company, you have two marriages at the same time, <laughs> which sometimes compete against each other. Um, so being honest in specific areas of, you know, collaborating in a business is tough when you have a friendship next to that. Um, I believe, though, that friendship in a business context makes a lot of sense, yeah? but I think there you need to, there's a fine line between, you know, the best friend relationship, uh, if it's not fully transparent on or not clear enough how business works. So um, you need to be able to really 
transparently educate or yeah tell the other person what you like and what you don't like. And if that reflects to the friendship, it's a bit shady. But maybe to compare. So what we thought at that point um, is the opportunity of a digital translation management tool. Um, so being able to learn from translations that have been done and process the translation on a digital basis. So lead gen slash process makes makes a little sense. Um, and the fun thing is I discussed uh, the same idea, um, I think two or three weeks ago um, with a good friend that runs a VC in Austria um, because he was involved at that time as well in the idea finding. And it very highly relates to companies at the moment as Localize, for example, which are one of the new hip and trendy startups that really, really do well in, in the VC world. Um, and that's what, I mean, we tried just too early to, on the one hand, digitize a process that at that time was offline. So we needed to convince, and I think it was 2008 or nine or so, um, companies specifically to hand in their translation requests online and process, I mean, structure them properly. And then we want to build a translation memory system in the bag, which basically helps us to automatically translate stuff that in the future will be translated from this client. Right. So two, two things. One is more the acquisition side and the other thing is the technological side. And um, I mean, we've been yeah, just very unexperienced at that time, just in the university or short off the university and made a lot of mistakes, believed that people would invest in us um, that was at that time just, I mean, I wouldn't even had invested in myself looking at it now. Yes. <laughs> so I understand why things fell. We, we, we came to a product that we put out to the market. We had some clients, but it just didn't take off. And looking at it, I mean, from now or uh, from, from the last year, from the past, yeah, it's just been too early, too early in terms of technology um, because the tech was not available. I think if you look now at Deeple or everything in, in that area, um, they're doing a great job. But at that time, AI and everything around it was just not what it is today. Um, and the second one was the market itself, uh, which was not ready for handling their requests digitally and um, trusting a website yeah, with a very personal service or personal process. So also great learning, although it didn't work out in the end. But as you said, there's almost no risk involved. Yeah. <laughs> um, then there's there was another project that we're going to tackle in the second episode, Topfachhandel, that you actually bootstrapped. So yeah. we're going to talk about bootstrapping yeah. in the second episode. What was uh, striking to me was then you actually became head of products at Dine Deal, yeah. one of the biggest Swiss success stories, I would say. Why did you decide to get employed and not just start another company yourself? I need to come to Top 100 first to make okay. the link sure. um, because they are very closely connected to each other. Um, I think it was 2010, 2011, where this whole couponing market grew like hell for at least one and a half years and then it dropped. But the first one and a half years were amazing. Um, and I mean, what happened is that Groupon started the wave in the US and then Daily Deal um, took it on in Germany, and I mean Groupon moved as well to to Germany, and then Dine Deal and everything around. Basically, everybody exploded. A lot of money was spent in marketing, and the whole market basically grew exponentially. For yeah, I, I think it was like 
two-ish years, maybe a bit, a bit, a bit less. And um, at that time, um, we just I mean finished the compare project, basically shut it down. It hasn't been successful. So one on my lost side of uh, my my personal score scoring list. Um, we we just yeah had a look at this hype um, and believed that we can do something with it. And how we approached it was the at the time when we looked at the market, what the Groupons of the world sold were uh, PDF coupons, mm -hmm. so mainly for services. So they acquired hairdressers who wanted to have new customers, and the hairdressers needed to um, give a 50% discount to Groupon plus a 30% margin, which in itself doesn't make <laughs> sense, but that's the way how the market worked at the time. Um, and yeah. Customers could buy these coupons online, and Groupon or Daily Deal or Dine Deal, whoever made a margin out of it. And we believed that we can leverage this customer size, which was enormous, I mean, like huge, um, with physical goods, because nobody actually on this platform sold physical goods. Um, it was solely focused on services. So um, myself and a friend at that time, uh, who was South Korean and had pretty good connections um, to Korea and China, um, thought about why not approaching these platforms um, with products that made sense in the context um, which they're running and try to sell goods. And sell them in a very clever way, um, specifically at the beginning of, of the whole Dine Deal topic, which was um, Dine Deal, Daily Deal, however they are called, they basically um, the deal ran for one to two weeks on the platform. Um, so they collected money from the customers. Mm -hmm. And right after the deal was finished, they paid out your portion of the deal. Um, so as we didn't know until the deal was finished who bought the products, we could not buy the products because we didn't know how much. But we could leverage the financing or the payout that we got after the deal to actually buy the products. So we haven't had to pre-finance the stuff that we put on the platforms. Right. We basically tried to establish a yeah, supply chain that took the money that we got from the Groupons of the world, and usually one to two days after the deal was finished. With that, ordered the stuff via dropshipping in China or South Korea, let it flew in, which was a very expensive way to actually ship stuff, but it was there in a week. Um, right. And then we package everything and send it out to the clients. So within one, two, three-ish weeks, mm -hmm. the clients would have their goods. We wouldn't have to pre-finance anything. So right. for us, it was like we at the beginning or at the end of the deals, we actually knew by send what we will earn. Literally, um, no risk. Exactly, no risk. I mean, the only risk was the transport in a way because you had to go. Um, I mean, through the what is toll stations. Uh, the like import yeah. uh, process, yeah. which was pretty tough for some of the goods. And um, we focused on very specific products, which actually were highly seasonal on the platforms because that created the biggest peer pressure on the platforms and the highest impact. Um, contact, uh, colored lenses before Halloween. Yeah, so, I mean, you can really time that um, as a deal that ends a month before Halloween and there's right. peer pressure and before Halloween you get the lenses. Um, yeah, uh, slats after the first uh, snow was, was falling. How, how do you find out about these things? I mean, we did a lot of research um, and we really, we, we tested some pieces, but 
just figured out that the seasonal stuff works the best. Um, and I think the biggest success was for us actually a colored, was always the colored lenses because we could buy them for $2 and we could sell them, I mean, original price 20 euros and you, you made a 50% discount and then you still had seven then as minus Groupon fee and you still had seven on the bank. And then we tweaked the whole model as well to uh, work that way that the customer could buy a coupon on the Groupon platforms, but would need to pay um, a sending fee on our platform when they enter basically the credentials. So you would not lose the margin for this piece of the transaction. And I mean, this is the way how we tweaked it. And it was, was like, I mean, for half of a year was one of the best running businesses ever. And you could just count the money that was How flowing. much money did he make there on high times? I think on a monthly basis in EBDA, more than 100K. Wow. Yeah. I mean, really, if you hit the right deals, that sure. was basically just a money machine. And you were just two people there? We were just two people and we had 10 interns. They just, we packaged stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and you didn't need to do a lot because the platforms were running um, and they handled all, um, at least the payments and we got just the money wired from them <laughs> to our bank account. And then we had to make sure that our own e-commerce e systems basically handle the transaction for the shipping costs. Um, so that was pretty straightforward. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think in terms of volume, around 10,000 packages per month. Wow. So for us being, I think it was 21 at the time, like superb. There, there was one challenge and that basically drove me to sell the company to my co-founder, um, which was Groupon, Daily Deal and Dine Deal understood at some point <laughs> that <laughs> there, there was a trap in their business model, which we basically used to make money. Um, and after three, four months, we've not been the only ones to offer the platforms these products or services because other people actually noticed what we're doing. And I mean, we, we did not produce the stuff by ourselves, so they could easily go to the same producers and ask for the products and ship it to them over the same way. So margins got thinner. Um, and I mean, in the end, this business model solely relied on the external platform. Um, so we do try to um, force the customer um, yeah, to, to have a bonding or a retention you would say now to us as a brand on our shops because they had to enter their address and stuff like this. But to be frank, that's it, it's very rare, rarely happened that someone bought a second item on our um, our shops. So I had a bit of a strategic fight with a co-founder of what should we do? I mean, should we just fully focus on the Groupons of the world and squeeze out everything we get? And I mean, the margins, if the margins get smaller and smaller, you see things melting a bit um, or focus more on our own shops. And then the question was, do we really believe in that business? Um, and as he had the context to all the logistics and, and producers, and I was more the one taking care about the tech and the product and the marketing, um, he really had a deep belief that this is still a scalable business on the, on the long run, which it not tended out to be, to be frank. Um, and myself being rather on the end of, hmm, I'm not sure if I can go away with uh, a decent amount of money. Um, maybe right. rather take that one and chase the other, the next opportunity. And at that time was the next opportunity, which was Dine Deal was already winning, uh, ringing because they were, I mean, they were seeing what we we're doing and they wanted to, yeah, 
profit from that by building their own warehouse in their own supply chain. Um, and this was, I mean, the time where I got to know uh, Adi and Amir and everybody involved in Daniel, which the is the, mafia, we, we, we always call it the Daniel Mafia <laughs> with Laurent and Julian and Julian. So everybody that, I mean, even today founded very successful companies, um, but different ones out of Daniel, out of the background. Um, and the reason for me to, to make a move from Berlin, because I wanted to as well, I mean, wouldn't say go international because from Berlin to Zurich is not really international, um, but have a different experience and learn from other people because I had the feeling I, I mean, sold to companies at that point where I was 21, um, but I haven't made a living out of it in terms of uh, I still had to work, uh, was not enough to, uh, to spend my life with. Um, on the other hand, I, I didn't really have the chance to learn from experienced entrepreneurs. Um, so I always did it just by accident. I mean, mail, learning from the family background or learning from other people that I challenged myself with, but I didn't work for someone where I believed that this is something I, or someone that I admire and um, wanted to understand how this whole thing is, is working. And Daily Deal was sold for, I think, 100 million, 150 million to Google at that time. And so it was like just a very natural opportunity to, for me to say, these Daniel guys, they seem to do good. Um, let's try to learn as much as I can in a more leadership position. Right. And then I can imagine this decision, of course, it was a huge opportunity, but at the same time, you also had to leave your co-founder and to a certain degree, not directly because of a different market, but to a certain degree, you were also building a competitor to him. I wouldn't say building competitors. I mean, he... Dine Deal and Daily Deal and however they are called, I mean, they, they were the platforms. And what right. we essentially did with Tapfer Handel is we just used them to facilitate our products and services. Sure. So we didn't really compete. We, we haven't had marketing. We didn't, I mean, haven't had a customer relationship as they are having. So I, I didn't feel bad. Um, and I think we split on good terms. Um, though I was sad to see that with the bust of the couponing market, um, Obviously, Tofa Handel contributed it as well in a negative way to that. So slowly, uh, yeah, declines in terms of top, um, yeah, uh, in terms of revenues, and then at some point had to be shut down. But I think fair enough. This is, I think you learn to deal with that when you are in, in the entrepreneurial scene. That things come and go, and you have to let go. Yeah, and I think looking back, you probably got the right timing to let go. I think this was actually one of the best timings so far that I had in terms of exit. Um, that for sure. I mean, still haven't been a millionaire at that time. Um, had to work, but it really worked out well. Um, and I learned the maximum that I could learn on that level and then basically jumped on um, the next opportunity that then gave me the chance with Laurent, with Founded Mobile, with Julian, who this was doing WeFox, I mean, Amir and, and Adi, to work together with them and just grab the pieces that I believe they do well right. on, on how they run the business and yeah. the business. What were like the major learnings or takeaways that you took from your time at Dindeal? Well, there are a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> and there are positive and negative ones. Um, so Dindeal assembled a group of amazing uh, people that had an entrepreneurial mindset to drive their business. Um, 
I think that group of people, uh, I mean, I wasn't able to find elsewhere. And if you look at what everybody from them built on their own now, um, back at the last 10 years, I'm solely impressed how they made that. So um, being successful as a company, and I think we can question the fact if Daniel was successful, except the exits. Right, because I think you never um, made actually profit, right? No, no. I'm not sure even if they are profitable now. I think they, are, they should be close to equal. But I mean, Daniel is a success story because the company was sold successfully, right. but not because we created a sustainable business. So how, how does that feel? What do you think about that? Because these are like two different perspectives that you can take, right? I think it refers a lot to the bootstrapping discussions and how you run a business. Um, but it describes very nicely how venture market is functioning. Right. Um, and I mean, it was one of the first experiences of myself with being in a hype and what a hype can do with a business. And I mean, the second hype that I made was Knip, which was the insure tech wave number one. Um, there are pros and cons to that. I mean, from now, from looking at the small, from the small PDF perspective to that, um, it's, it was and is very irrational what we've did there. Um, if I look at it, more from the VC or shareholder or founder angle, it is just how the, the mechanics work and how the business works. So, I mean, if you are in a hype, you can utilize it and make a living for yourself or um, earnings for your investor out of it. I think it's still fair to do as long as you don't blow up something that is not there. Right. But people believed in it, Renier believed in it. Um, the belief was wrong. I think that's fair to say, um, but still it proved to be, um, yeah, I mean, one of the most successful startups in terms of what right. the founders got out at the yeah. point of the exit. You know, sometimes uh, people often ask how much of that exit or exits in general is actually like, you know, skill and, and getting the right timing and how much is actually luck? It's hard to quantify, but I... I mean, it was definitely both in the Dindale ecosystem. So I think as much as I know the figures and the cash, so the, the company was short before getting bust or being in the need of more financing. Um, and at that point, some companies, including Renier, believed in the hype right. and just bought into it without asking too many questions. <laughs> Yeah. Which was luck. Sure. Um, I think if they would have done a proper DD, they might have not bought it. Um, but as there was peer pressure to other investors as well, which is one of the way how it just works in right. the VC game or PE game, um, it turned out to be good. And I think this is, I think, one of the learnings and, and the way of uh, the reason as well why I'm still very impressed of what the founders, um, I mean, from Dindir did at that point. Um, and I mean, they. the second point why I'm impressed with them is that they really invest the money still in the ecosystem. Um, so if you look at Dario or Adi or Amir, I mean, they're funding still in a very from very early, early days on as an angel, the startups. So I think getting that money away from the big dogs uh, of the industry and then redeploying it into the market, market is just yeah. the, the way how it naturally needs to happen to fund an ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah, that's crucial for this with startup ecosystem. You also mentioned that there were negative aspects that you took away or learned from mm -hmm. your time at Dine Deal. Do you also have an example for one of those? 
Yeah. Uh, scaling too fast <laughs> uh, can break a lot of things. And I mean, we've grew from, I'm not sure the, how many employee I was, but I think I was in the four, number 40 or so, maybe some, somewhere in that range. Um, and we've grown to 200 plus employees within less than a year. Um, and that can never be sustainable. Um, Why not? You are so heavily forced to hire people than to hire the right people. Mm -hmm. If your focus is to hire a specific amount of people, right. um, that you will make wrong decisions. Um, and I think that's just if you have two, three uh, bad eggs in your organization, it's really, really hard to um, recover from that. Um, and I personally believe that we just scaled too fast. It was not sustainable. It was not sustainable from an economical perspective, and it was not sustainable from a cultural perspective. Okay. Um, so I think this is definitely something that I learned that you need to take care of that intensively um, to not destroy a company. Um, what else did I learn? I think if you look at the people, and it's, I mean, specifically targeted to, to the, the people that as well, I mean, the Dindeal Mafia, if you want to call it like this. Yeah. It's so cool because uh, in the US, they have the PayPal <laughs> Mafia. We in Switzerland have the Dindeal Mafia. I think that's I'm not sure, but was, what did, was this covered from a new side or so already? I'm not sure. I think we have to I make this. But it sounds pretty good, I would say. <laughs> 20 minutes, front page, <laughs> Daniel Mafia. Um, yeah, loving this already. Um, no, I think I, I learned a lot of things from them on, um, I mean, from how I want to be or how I don't want to be. And mm -hmm. I'm, I don't really want to judge if it's good or bad. I mean, because y you define yourself on what you want to be and what your values are and what you believe in. Um, but I think on a positive and on a negative side, from working with these people, you learn a lot about that. Um, so how to treat employees, um, how to treat negative conversations like letting people go, investor discussions about figures that are not too good. Um, and yeah, I think it just it, it helped to define who I am and who I became or will become. <laughs> and I think this also goes very well with the learning by doing approach that you mm -hmm. mentioned in the beginning. This is really that one in the application, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So then after Dine Deal, um, you said, OK, it's time to go and found another company. You became the co-founder and COO at Numbers, mm -hmm. uh, a company that is currently also pretty heavily covered in the media. Can you talk us a bit more about how you actually got involved there and why you decided to start another company? Um, so there, there, there was a, a very um, thought through rational for me behind that. So I went from founding two companies on my own to being employed and learning a lot. And I wanted to make the next move, but I didn't want to take full risk. Um, so the question was what to do. And at that time, um, I think at that time they've been called Central Way. Um, approached and was around the corner, and they had the idea of actually, um, yeah. At, I mean, at that point, all the incubators were, you know, a big thing. I, mean, I think it became a real thing now, um, or real, realistic uh, thing. Um, they approached. They wanted 
what they had in ideas. Um, we initially didn't discuss about the numbers idea, but the, about other ideas. And I felt that the way how they envisioned things is very yeah, well thought through, strategic, and visionary. Um, and I personally could relate to that. And that was the reason why I decided to join. Um, more as an entrepreneur in residence at the beginning, but then we very fast actually came to the idea of numbers. Um, and yeah, I mean, just executed on that um, funding from the incubator. And then later on from uh, high net worth individuals as Osborne and Bodmer. So pretty crazy setup, which reflects as well to the news that you will hear or hear or read at the moment. Um, but I, I enjoyed that environment as well for two reasons. One, again, the people side of things. Um, I mean, Johannes and Julian were um, my two co-founders there are inspirational people that I still admire and really enjoyed working with them. And the second thing is Central Ray was really, really good at pitching ideas. Um, well, specifically Martin Seidler, who is the owner or running the, the brain and the person behind um, Central Ray and Numbers, knowing that this is controversial for legitimate reasons. Yeah? Um, but I think you can learn if you took, take the nice or the, the reasonable pieces that you believe are valuable from these people um, and leave the rest of the side, you can learn a lot. Um, and yeah, we, we built numbers with the intention and it was pre-N26 um, at the time where Outbank was something in Germany. So basically as banking aggregator, because in Germany you had APIs that let you connect to your banks. Yeah, which is not the case here in Switzerland. Exactly, which is the reason why it was never launched in Switzerland. <laughs> um, and uh, we basically, there, it, it was really an is open APIs. So everybody could connect to these bank accounts just by having the PIN and the account number and read out all the data. And we just believed that aggregating the data and making it accessible and informational, enriching this information brings a lot of value to the users. And we've seen it with Outbank, um, who didn't enrich what they were doing. Um, so we built a product for that, um, had a investment from ProSieben, pushed a lot in TV, worked really, really well at that time. Um, but I mean, very fast discovered and this, I mean, central way and the way how numbers work and I believe still works, is very American. So customer, grow, tell a story, don't give a shit about monetization. Um, I think that's what we've done at that time. But I mean, the monetization part, we obviously discovered and we had a very high burn rate. And the question that we asked um, to ourselves as the three founders and then had discussion as well with the incubator who had the majority share of the company um, was, what can we do to make money? Because just aggregating bank statements, um, making this information accessible and maybe grouping it or tagging it, I mean, you can advertise in your banking timeline, but nobody wants that sure. because you don't want to read out customers' data. So how can you monetize? Um, and there, the first discussion happened about moving into more of a direction of N26. So at the beginning, N26 was not their own bank. They actually rented a bank license from a banking provider, which I think was Wirecard, um, and 
there were two directions in which numbers could have gone, and I mean, you know which one they took. One is integrate deeper into the value chain um, by becoming our own bank, offer our own products, having our own balance sheet, offer our own cards, and with that service the customer on a very digital way, or staying at the aggregation level and try to earn money with the data. Uh, let's phrase it very, yeah, very broad. And um, Martin at the time believed very much in that Google story, and that was always the pitch that he basically was putting on the UBS and everybody who said, we aggregate so many data from our customers that we know so much about them um, that this is way more valuable than integrating into the value chain and going deeper. Whereas uh, I think we three had the feeling that this is not true. We'd rather want to go the path of funding our own bank and right. creating this as a value versus just being an aggregator on top of it. And I think this assumption, for looking at it from now, is true. Um, though numbers succeeded some years, but in a very questionable way uh, in terms of how it was financed, but never made the switch or never had the chance to really earn money. Um, so I think that's the reason why it's more of a bus story at the moment than yeah. a real sustainable business. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think as I'm, yeah, I'm getting quite emotional in a positive way about it. And uh, as you can hear, there are a lot of thoughts and learnings as well along the way of what you could do or why value is important. Um, and I mean, value not only to customers, but as well as to you as a company, because somehow you need to pay the salary and somehow you need to get financed. So you cannot finance yourself with VCs or PEs for 20 years. At some point, it needs to pay back. Sure. Um, or you need to continue the growth. And I think that's what, what basically yeah, brought them to the point of where they are. Yeah. You, you mentioned the values. Um, how important are they also for fundraising? Um, you were talking about sort of a shady uh, investment. How did that show there? So the central way or numbers, however you will call them, always had the problem that their pitch and their vision and the way how they framed it and presented the story was amazing. But the numbers were shitty. Um, because there was just no revenue. Right. And the structure of or from which they operated being, you know, with fund and then Martin as a person and the management that they had in was not the most professional structure you can imagine to work from. So what they tried um, is they tried to approach VCs mm -hmm. to fund numbers or the incubator, but they all denied because they saw what is happening. In a way, yeah. So the the management is has just a very minor share in the company, but is the, the I mean drives it operationally. But right. the mother company wants to have big influence in it, and just this whole structure from a um, incentivization point of view and from an organization point of view doesn't make any sense. And this right. is the reason why all the VC said, "Why should we?" I mean, it doesn't make any sense. There is no value increase, and or the risk is too high that it doesn't work. So the strategy shifted from approaching VCs to approaching high net worth individuals who've been in the area in which Central Way operated, which is finance, um, and made them believe in the vision of a Google for finance. Right. And that turned out to be easier. 
<laughs> because as you can imagine, a CEO from a big bank uh, might not have an idea how valuable a million or two million users without any revenue can be. Sure. Um, so this was the way to go for them and as well the point where I slowly dropped out of the company um, in the way that they pursued as, as much as I know till today. Basically always approach high net worth individuals for 10, 20, 30, 40 million uh, investments in this structure that from our perspective maybe doesn't make sense. I'm not sure if they change it. I'm not sure how it is today. Right. Um, and just make a live of that. So it's basically, uh, you're, you're always chasing the cheese, basically, <laughs> for the next round, right? Not sure. Who is chasing the cheese? Yeah. So, I mean, I think both both sides. So the, right. the individuals and Centrally in the end. And I mean, as they have a shitload of money and they have a bonding, I mean, you know, that's the thing about VC or investments in general as well. If you have a investment committing investor committing reasonable amounts of money to you, they don't want it to have you fail. They will always try to make a trade sale, to make a merger, or to sure. reinvest um, because the last thing that they want to have is a press release with this investment goes bust. Um, and that I think worked really well in the in the central environment. <laughs> so yeah, talking about the incentives, right? Exactly. Was well, just on the wrong side of things, <laughs> not on the entrepreneurial side. No. Yeah. Was that also the main reason why you then left, or were there also other reasons? Yeah, I mean, the reason, the main reason was the strategy, um, because we've grown heavily, but there was no outlook on what actually makes sense. And the second one was, and that's the relation to Knip. Um, we thought a lot at, at numbers about monetization, mm -hmm. um, being at ads in the stream, um, being at subscription-based uh, revenues, but it was way, way too early at that point. Um, to work for customers to understand why they should do that. Um, and we thought about insurances as well, um, offering and how insurance works. And this was basically my entry point in the idea behind KNIP, um, the understanding that insurance is different than banking. Um, on the insurance side, the insurance doesn't necessarily own the relationship to the customer. But there are intermediaries, which are called brokers or agents, who actually own the relationship and the insurance pay the broker for managing their clients, um, which would be amazing if we would have found that one in banking. Um, but it, it just right. did not happen to be that way, um, at least not on the retail customer, on the high net worth customer, it's slightly different. Um, but yeah, I think that was the touch point with the insurance space and where myself and Christina um, just slowly got the idea. I mean, it's really easy, or really easily explained and it feels like in the description which I'm giving now is like da 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 da, -da idea, doing something, idea, doing something. I mean, this is like a process of months or years right. um, to build that out. Um, but this was the basis for the idea of KNIP, which then took us some time to elaborate because we still needed to understand of how the money flows go. Um, and yeah, what is a POA, a broker mandate, what we call it, so power of attorney that the customer gives you. And can we actually digitally get this power of attorney to a digital company, right. but still communicate to the insurance that we are now 
the ones serving the customer and then having they pay us for the service. Um, so there was a lot of process questions involved in the whole idea behind Knip. Um, but we figured this out by actually um, going to brokers in Switzerland and just asking them, paying them money for asking us questions, uh, answering <laughs> us questions on how the whole infrastructure works. Um, because there are different levels of brokers. There are actually agents which have a one-to-one -one relationship to one insurance carrier. And there are brokers who have a one-to-n relationship. So they can serve every company. But not every company allows pay out to brokers. So it's like a very fragmented and weirdly structured market. Before we talk more about Knip, I have uh, another question for you, according to all the projects that we talked about so far. Um, what was interesting for me is you didn't stay longer than three years at any of these companies, except for Knip then afterwards. But was there a speci specific reason why that was not the case? Because you could also argue you basically left before the best time because usually you have like to invest more to build up something and then things start really to take off, maybe. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm getting older now and with it maybe a bit wiser. You know, I think, I mean, you know, you have the Sturmandrang phase. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, I mean, that I think that related to me as well. So I was really focused on learning, learning, learning and investing a lot of time and a lot of energy in the ideas or in the companies. But... At the same time, I had the feeling that at some point, just my learning curve flattens. And right. it was usually the point where I then at least questioned myself being in this environment. And as I was not the owner of these two stints, or the, I mean, just a very minor owner um, of one of the stints, um, I mean, just the question of if it makes sense or if it not makes sense to continue. Because the, I mean, the path from funding to companies by myself and then going more into a employee relation and into an kind of entrepreneur and residence relation, um, it still should have ended in I own my own company. <laughs> um, so that was always the goal. Um, but I wanted to give it a step-by-step -step approach. Um, but I, I had the feeling with the idea behind Knip, which proved to be, as well from looking at it from now, the right timing and the right idea, um, yeah, being the right step for myself. And for the, the central ways or numbers chapter, you also mentioned that you were looking for a role with less risk. Mm -hmm. What was the reason for that? I think I was just not ready. Um, so, I mean, considering risk as financial risks, um, funding your own company and looking at Knip, for example, I mean, there's, there was a serious amount of money for myself involved. Um, I wasn't ready to take that at that time because I didn't feel ready. Um, and still wanted to learn. And I think that was one of the reasons which just kept me back. And as we're looking at the opportunities, I mean, it's always a question about the opportunity itself and how it's structured, right? So you, I mean, even now with small PDF, I mean, I didn't fund the company, but I believe in the opportunity that the company has to grow, um, which is what I admire to work on. Um, and it was the same thing with, with Daniel and was the same thing with Numbers and then, I mean, with Knip, but in a different setting by founding it myself and allocating for years, more or less. To exactly. Yeah, so let's talk a bit more about Knip. Uh, maybe you can also talk a bit more about the market opportunity that you saw why also the timing was right. I'm not sure if the timing was right. I still, I mean, I think we've been... What I learned, and maybe to, to put that bluntly up front, is it is not good to be the first mover. 
Um, and we've been the first mover, and we had to solve all these shitty issues of power of attorneys, putting to the insurance carriers, educating the insurance carriers, educating the clients. And then all of a sudden, a lot of other players came into the market. And you know, if you've spent most of your money at that point where the others come in and they can spend even more, um, doesn't make you look good if you're not sustainably um, built. But I think again, back to the opportunity. So in, it was even before the insure tech wave. And I think we've been one of the companies that actually enabled as well that and was, I mean, super nice to see and to ride this wave. Um, the opportunity that we saw was very, very big and is still very, very big, which is um, you as a customer have in on average 3.7 insurances that you that you have car insurance health insurance dental insurance life insurance you name it um, and they are all from different carriers and i'm sure there's a very rare percentage of number uh, of people um, who really understand what they mean and what they cover um, and on the other hand, I'm, I'm not only understanding what I mean and what I cover, but having them aggregated, so knowing what you actually have is already a first step that is tough to achieve. Um, and we wanted to solve that. Um, and that's, I think, the path that I mean, KNIP and Digital Insurance Group is still on. So we, want to, we wanted to aggregate the data, which was the step one, um, enrich the data with information about the coverage, um, about what is actually included and what is not included. Right. And, and that was step two, serve you as a customer, um, meaning if you had a request, if you had a case, um, if you wanted money back, if you wanted to cancel, we've been there for you to just handle the whole process so you, you didn't need to take care of it. And then thirdly, optimize it. So if you pay too much right. for services that you could get cheaper at a different insurance, why not changing insurance? Um, and yeah, I think that's, the market opportunity that we've seen um, on starting from the Swiss market, then as I'm German myself, going to the German market, then making a huge mistake going to the US, and then coming back. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, being, yeah, having a bit less money on the bank account after that. Um, but I think it was an amazing opportunity to just see a hype growing from zero to I think in the end days, we had about 200,000 customers wow. um, managing over a billion in insurance policy volume. So that's pretty, pretty decent. It's pretty solid, I would say. Let's talk about the challenges that you faced along to get to these 200,000 users. Uh, one thing you just mentioned, the US expansion. Um, you had two VCs on board from the US. Um, can you talk a bit more about why you then actually decided to go to the US? Was that like Switzerland first and let's just 10 exit, go to Germany and then let's uh, probably um, yeah, increase it again by a couple multiple uh, to go to the US. Why not doing something else than that? So yeah, I think that's a classical, I would describe the story of being too ambitious <laughs> of what you should do. So um, in Germany, we would say Schuster, Blatt bei deinen Leisten. So what, I mean, just for the story, so we um, we actually raised a seed round in Switzerland from Swiss Angels, um, proved the app. So I mean, Knip was a app first or mobile first during business. Um, with that, I think uh, had about four or five thousand customers at that time. Um, raised a Series A 
of around two and a half ish million, three million um, from Swiss and Dutch investors. So, I mean, with Alpine was involved here, um, we had Orange Grove Capital, now Finch um, as a lead investor, um, used that to foster growth in Switzerland and Germany and grew into, I think, like 20 ish thousand active customers. And then the question that we had was, okay, what's the, you know, what is the next big step that you want to take? Right. And I think we've been a bit over ambitious on the valuation that we wanted to reach. And for that, you need to have a story. So it just works that way. What were you aiming for? In terms of valuation, I think at that time, so the Series B closing was above 50 million. Okay. Yeah. So we raised in a Series B 13 something million mm -hmm. um, from um, QED, which was one of the US investors, and Route 66, who was the lead investor at that time. Mm -hmm. And then Creator in Switzerland jumped in, and with Alpine, everybody did a follow on, which, I mean, this was really the high, the peak of. Of Knip in the end, um, and and that was as well a time where I mean it was super fun. Um, I think the appreciation as well from the outside as much as from the inside was fun. You could attract like the best talent available for the company, and we've grown up to 120 employees at that time. Um, so like really really extensive, and as well on the edge of unhealthy. So it relates a bit to the Daniel story, but we try to make it as healthy as possible. How do you do that? Just being a bit slower and more cautious on the culture and the hiring process. Okay. There you probably had the learnings from Dynasty. Exactly. So you could encounter the learnings. You could really make sure that it's, you know, it's not only ambition in an employee that you should yeah. value. Um, it's as well the culture side of how does he handle negative situation? Is there a culture fit in collaboration with other people? Or is this basically just a single person going nuts? Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's, that, that's what we tried to encounter. And we had a great team together and really, really admired that. Yeah. Where is the Series B? Um, and there the story, and that's what we built up by obviously um, yeah, talking to other VCs. Um, we had, I think, four term sheets as lead investors at that point on the table. We could have done UK, um, but we decided for the US, uh, which now looking back was the wrong decision. Um, but we went for the valuation, which was and is the wrong thing to do. Um, so basically what happened is we decided for that structure, 13 million um, investment plus, and um, with the story of we will bring that model, which scaled now at that time, I think, to 50,000, 60,000 active customers yeah. to the US. And you know, the US is the market number one, right. 300 million people, <laughs> not fragmented as Europe. So you can go in, you can go big, and then we are all billionaires and you know, have a nice yeah. living after that. Um, and we then built a small um, business development team, um, including Nick, who's currently heading um, sales operations at Scandit, um, David uh, and myself, and we went over to the US, mm -hmm. to New York, and then California um, to build up Knip US. And I mean, as I said, the ambition was there, but uh, the market was not ready for that. So what we discovered in the US is that, and, and that's a bit of this kind of 
how do you say it? I think it's a story that we should have known before, but we didn't, and our investors as well didn't. Um, we told that story of we want to go to the US, and we obviously make, made a market analysis um, around what is happening there. Um, and they approved that one to be true, um, which was the reason why they invested. But it turned out that the hypothesis was not right. Um, so what we found then moving over was a market of 50 different states or 51 different states with 51 different regulations. So it's and, almost like Switzerland. Yeah, even worse. <laughs> um, and uh, a legal framework which did not allow us to operate the way how we operated in Germany and Switzerland, which was the cu customer gives us the power of attorney. So we essentially become the customer. Right. And with that, we can access the data. That does not exist over there, but we worked with the hypothesis that this exists. Yeah. And the second um, thing that made us bust in a way in the US was um, for making money on the CNIP side, we needed contracts with the insurance carriers. So they needed to say, I approve CNIP as approved broker, mm -hmm. and with that, we'll pay between 5 to 20% of the premium that the customers are paying to them right. to handle the services. So whatever the customer has, they will not come to the insurance, but to us, and we are paid for that by the carrier. Um, and it turned out that only three of the top 10 insurances in the US mm -hmm. allow these kind of deals, which mean that you could have a billion in, let's say, managed premiums, right. but you could only monetize maximum one third of that and you would have to serve the customer still on the other 70%. Yeah. That doesn't make economical sense. No, exactly. And this was the reason why we left a lot of money on the table and uh, some had some hard discussions with the investors and about the reasoning behind, but then made the decision actually to cut off the US business, okay. I think after even two and a half months that we've been there, okay. and focus back on Germany and Switzerland. How much money did you lose in these two and a half months? High six digits. Okay. Yeah, that's an expensive trip. <laughs> <laughs> but a funny one. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, I think it was one of the, the times I learned the most in my whole entrepreneurial career. Of, I mean, usually you learn the most out of failures. Right. Um, but I think this was, I consider this one as one of the biggest mistakes that I did ever. But I learned a lot about it. And one other thing that you mentioned before was you also worked really hard, you know, because growing fast and also almost at an unhealthy level, mm -hmm. this can also really affect your, your personal well-being, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially also the one of your co-founder that was then also a, a challenge along the way that you had to face. What happened there? The challenge of a scale-up is obviously um, that you have a lot of up and downs um, in terms of successes, acquiring a lot of customers, um, doing funding rounds. But the downs come usually half a year after the funding round where the money is slowly drying out and then you have to find other investors and you have to make sure that the KPI is down. So the pressure, not from the outside to you, but to yourself, from you to yourself, can be pretty high if you cannot reflect on that and you cannot stand it. Um, and it happened. Uh, in, in CNIP, um, where, um, yeah, basically there was a burnout on the co-founder side, um, which was a super hard time. 
um, that we had because obviously you earn the majority of shares together and you are the kind of yeah married uh, if you want to say like this and committed to to the business and to the vision that you have but at the same time see and it, it's not only related to a co-founder i mean happen as well to employees to important employees burning out because of the pressure that they put on themselves not that put the business on themselves because i mean you can you can just quit your working contract and go right so yeah but you rarely do that especially not as a co-founder Fully agree, but I think, I mean, you have to reflect on that as well um, and just try to be in a very healthy state as a person to then, yeah, be ready for the challenges. Um, so, I mean, this was one of the toughest situations even before a financing round that happened um, where when you have to split from your co-founder. Um, right. it, at least in terms of operating the company, this is not the easiest decision to make. Um, and it is a hard discussion to have um, and a very emotional one. <laughs> right. How did he do um, that? Did he get any support on board or how did that happen? I mean, the, what I must say is that the investors at that time have been really, really helpful. And I mean, everybody that is committed to the vision right. um, wants to support and, and wanted as well to support the co-founder at, at that point to just make things work the way how they intended to work. Um, what definitely hurts uh, in a VC environment is that if only the minority of shares is working on the vision, yeah. it's really hard to drive it. Um, and it was basically the twist well, I mean, that, that happened, um, which was as well not healthy for Knip as a company. Mm -hmm. um, but I must say the VCs and the angels that were involved are super helpful, were helpful in the process in, you know, talking, um, negotiating, setting up the right contracts, having the right communication, telling you or proposing you how to approach this whole thing. And I think we, I mean, I'm not sure if we, if I would say we succeeded on that. I think we came to a conclusion that was the healthiest one that we could find. Mm -hmm. um, but it was still, yeah, a very tough situation, yeah. which... Yeah, I mean, had a long-term negative impact on Knip as a business. Right. You mentioned that people need to be able to to reflect also on the stress and not probably to let it, you know, dig too deep into them. Um, to what degree has that the company a responsibility to avoid the the burnout, and to what level is that also a, a personal responsibility? It's definitely both, and I've seen that very often. Seeing it now as well in in small PDF. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's two-sided. I think what the company can do is making you aware on the one hand and helping you with therapists or coaches that have a outside view right. to figure out what it is and what the reasoning is. Because the reasoning is for everybody completely different. Yeah. It can be familiar things that because everybody worked so hard in your family you want to work hard as well which doesn't make any sense um, because the output the quality of the output is the deciding factor it can be because you are so ambitious in what you want to reach because you want to go to the next level that you just work your ass off but you will work yourself to death um, and i think this is what you need to understand and i don't believe that the company is the right one to understand because it's our responsibility to see it to recognize it and to act. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. um, but I would always act in the direction of hiring a coach, for example, and just having the person then having the conversation with a third party. Because I think for two reasons. I mean, one is this person needs someone who he can build up trust or she can build up trust with. Mm -hmm. um, the second one, if you have, you, you cannot bound every problem that exists to yourself as a founder or CEO or a company. Um, so I think there is a path, path where you just have to let things go or have to let people go or have to split or have to basically build a wall. And I think that that would be the wall that I would build would, would be, hey, don't work as you do because it's too much or you don't look healthy yeah. or whatever. There's someone you can call, we're going to pay it, but get right. yourself help. Is there anything that you wish you would have done differently, especially to support your co-founder, also employees who actually run in that um, situation? Something that you would have done earlier or differently compared to what you know now? I think earlier is definitely the thing that I would recognize the most. So maybe, maybe starting at the beginning. So I would would choose my or test, or I'm not sure how to frame it the right way. I think I would choose slash test my co-founder differently, okay. um, just to clarify and make sure that these things do not happen. I'm not sure if you can do that, though. That would have to be my next question. Yeah, it's super tricky. <laughs> no, so I mean, this one is definitely pretty hard. But I think running through challenging situations, and or maybe testing them, or um, hypothetically going through them might give you a feeling. And I still believe that, I mean, Christina and myself have been a superb leadership team and that that was, we were the right co-founders at the beginning of KNIP. Mm -hmm. But we've grown too fast as a company to make a change on the leadership side. So I think hiring, even if it's external, um, more senior leaders or all your senior leaders would have helped through the journey because we haven't gone through that. We just figured out how to, um, and that's way challenging, way more challenging than having someone external. So I think acting more upfront um, and being more aware of that is definitely something slash testing um, on really being sure that for the journey that at the beginning of the company, you would assume it would go through because th that's hard as well. So you sure. never would have thought that this was the path to go. Um, just make sure that it fits. Got it. And how do you actually keep yourself away from burning out? I think for my, so I think I found a nice way for myself to balance. And that's just as well based on all the experiences on the startup world, on the corporate side of things. Um, and it is focus your time and energy at the right points to the right things. So, I mean, for myself, for example, I'm, I can work 70 hours a week, but it will only happen one or two weeks a year when there's really pressure. And other than that, I try to focus my working time on work, which for me is usually Monday to Thursday, being in Zurich now for small PDF, dedicating 12, 14 hours a day. Um, but if I come to Berlin, where my daughter is and my wife is and my house is, um, it's family quality time. Yeah. Um, so there's a clear split between both. And people know that the only thing that I will react to is when they call me. 
And when they call me, it needs to be urgent. Let's go back to, to Knip. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he then sold the company. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a bit more about the process, how he actually got there and also made the decision that it's time to sell the company? <laughs> we were forced to. Um, so it was, I think it was a super, again, as well, there, a very interesting experience that I learned a lot <laughs> from. So uh, touching on the US experiment mm -hmm. that we did in the Series B that we raised, um, we still have been very successful in Germany and Switzerland. Um, but the story that we raised money on the 50, 60 million valuation obviously now was a different one, which was, yeah, maybe go to Austria if it makes sense. Right. <laughs> um, and I mean, between Dach and Dach US, um, just in terms of perception and potential is slightly different. Right. Um, so we reframed the business, we focused on Germany and Switzerland, we optimized the business, we brought down the burn rate, but again, we were at a point where we needed money um, to make the next step. Um, to grow more efficient, what we wanted to achieve actually as a company, and at that point, um, Emily came in, who is currently the CFO of Wingman, um, and was really, really helpful as CFO to guide the process through that. Um, we decided to reduce burn, extend the runway, and just make sure that we build more sustainable business than it was before, which was, I mean, before it was just the rocket ship go through the roof American right. style. Um, and then we wanted to turn more into sustainable, growing 100, 200% year over year business. So we restructured everything, brought down the headcount, I think from 120 to 80 ish people. Um, and we're before raising um, the next round on the purpose of, I mean, let's now have the technology basis, the process basis, the automation basis that we have, take it to the next level, growth specifically with partnerships and integrations into, for example, banks, not by just burning money on advertisements and TV, um, and use that as the value proposition and story for the Series C. Um, so we went on that track. Um, I mean, as you know, you do the pitches, you put all the numbers together. Uh, we actually had three investors committed for the Series C, which was intended to be around 25-ish million, um, so pretty decent, um, for not a, too much of an upside in terms of valuation to the last round. So it was intended to be like around the 70-ish million um, because we knew that we overpriced a bit the last round. But you still didn't want to do a down round because that would have exactly. been a I mean, down round destroys everything. Yes. Um, so you, you don't want to do this. And I mean, getting 20, 30 million in is still on a 60, 70 million valuation, still decent because you dilute like 25 to 30%. Right. And it, it leaves enough ownership and enough room for everybody basically to yeah, leverage us to the next step. Um, so we went through that whole process as well with an M&A boutique um, and been at a point where very, very famous Swiss reinsurance company actually uh, has been the lead investor. Um, they wired a term sheet, they did the due diligence. We had a very famous uh, Chinese insurance giant as well in the round um, that wanted to follow on um, the, the reinsurance company. Um, and 
the only thing that was so term sheet was signed, all the contracts were signed. The only thing that was missing was the board approval at the reinsurance company. And um, they have the rule, and they've just laid out a 50 million fund at a time, and it was a superb conversation. I still really admire the conversations and the vision that they had as well for their business towards NIP. Um, they laid out the rule in the board that they can only be a sole aligned decision in the board of this financing. Okay. And one of the board members whose name I will not name <laughs> actually decided against it. What were the reasons? We can only assume, um, but I mean, at that time, the, uh, how do you say it, insure tech competition was like superb high. I mean, you had GetSafe, you had WeFox, you had Clark, you had um, GetSurance. Um, so there was, I think the money that was deployed to the market was just enormous. And every bank itself is as well was going into the market. Um, so we had like really, really tough um, times in terms of marketing, which was more the reason why we wanted to go towards partnerships. So I think there are like two, three hypotheses around it. One would be just belief in the market was not there, although the market was definitely big enough. Um, number two was that there was a personal relationship with competitor. Um, and I mean, it was significant money that would have been deployed. Um, but it brought us to the point where the whole financing round really at the end of our cash runway and in the end of a six month process and having everybody committed to figures, to valuations, to, I mean, everything. You're uh, aligned, basically. Exactly. You're aligned. You have everything. You have the current investors following on. But if the lead investor drops out, it just collapses. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what happened, uh, which I think was one of the toughest times that I personally had in my life. Um, because your whole castle falls down. Um, and incredibly so, fast, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, from one day to the other. I mean, we've been super hopeful and all the discussions were positive. And I mean, they signed a contract and a term sheet. So it's not, I mean, knowing, even known before, that only a notary signature is binding. But I think you would believe that this actually right. works out. Uh, at least it was as well the experience that we had in the past. Um, but it did not. Um, and then, yeah, we basically uh, had uh, yeah, just glass lying around in front of us and we somehow needed to collect uh, the pieces from that. And there were some options on the table of just getting a bridge financing and starting the process again. But doing a bridge doesn't allow you to have the burn rate that you had before. So you again need to change the whole story. The question was, if we again go to VCs six months later, but tell a different story, does that, I mean, does that really sound? Um, and, and how does that compare? So there was always the opportunity that we had actually to buy Comparo um, or to merge with Comparo or to sell to Comparo. So, I mean, uh, um, Comparo at that time was one of the biggest white label comparison websites in the Netherlands. And actually, the piece that we were missing as Knip was a comparison functionality for automatically optimizing your insurances. So that was the fit that we've seen. Um, and we wanted to merge with them or wanted to buy them already one year before we did that transaction um, to way less valuation. But we had the feeling it's, it's good. And this turned out basically to be the path that 
somehow assembles the pieces, brings together and adds value. Um, the shitty thing that then happened, though, is that the former lead investors from the last rounds actually um, wanted to use the power that they gained with Christina dropping out and they being the lead investors and having the majority of, of KNIP um, to squeeze out with that transaction all the other shareholders. I mean, squeeze out significantly, but at least do a proper down round so that they could basically um, have a... Getting the money back to a certain degree, right? Yeah, and and driving the valuation back because I mean, and that's that's one thing that I really really learned the hard way. Is that, I mean, the fund in the end, or the funds, they need to report on their investment return, and their investment return is not the money that they are getting back, but the value of the percentage of their shares in a company. So they will fake as much as they can, the value targeted towards the percentage of the company. And if I own the majority of a company, it's easy for me um, to make a capital increase and just assume a valuation, whatever valuation makes sense, and then report it into the fund. So that's basically what happened um, at the sell side of KNIP. Um, so we all, as uh, yeah, some of the, the business angels that are around here in Switzerland, I mean, we as the founders had to agree somehow to the deal because we obviously still wanted to have Knip being alive right. and not going to court and uh, yeah, being illiquid. Um, so we figured out a deal structure that was definitely not in favor of a lot of shareholders, mm -hmm. um, but driven by the two lead investors of the last two rounds. And they basically secured with very little amount majority of the share or the majority of the company still had the chance to invest money to have it live and at the same time merge with Comparu so bringing additional value into it um, and yeah with that fund digital insurance group how it's called today um, running Comparu on the one hand and Knip on the other hand. Well that's a real roller coaster ride from going to the U US to world domination basically exactly. to uh, hey what's happening to my company yeah. What happened to your personal investment that you made there at the beginning? Did you get any money back or was yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. no, I, there was a payback um, and I think I'm well off with that. Okay. Um, but it's not that I'm billionaire. <laughs> okay, so you, you actually made money from your I investment. made some money and there is still, I mean, I still have a stake in the company as well. Um, so okay. it's not that we lost. And I mean, if you look at Digital Insurance Group now, Zurich, made, Zurich Insurance Group made, made a very significant investment into a digital insurance group about two and a half years ago, um, which it turned to be more an agency working as a white label solution provider for insurance carriers rather than being a B2C company, so more B2C for, uh, B2B focused. Um, and I mean, as you can imagine, 20 million investment in a company, usually having a 3x from investment to uh, post money valuation still leaves you with a decent amount. Exactly. And you also got paid in shares or in cash? Uh, actually in both. Okay. You negotiated well then? I'm not sure. So, I mean, as I said, I'm not, I think I'm, I may made a good living and as well make a good living, um, but it's not that it, I would call it a fabulous exit as the dying Okay. 
that's interesting. Although it probably, uh, which one did you did uh, have a better effect on your personal finances? Probably Knip, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely Knip in general. I mean, even over the whole period of time. Um, so. I would definitely rate Knip. I mean, it was as well for four years. It was way more intense and hands-on experience right. in running and leading the company. So, sure, yeah. but that's interesting. So you make more money there, but you don't really consider it a success. I think that's interesting. no, because I still believe that. I mean, and considered this one really being a company that I founded and built from scratch with right. Christina. Um, if, if I look at the market now and, and, and the Clarks and the WeFoxes of the world, despite the fact that I'm, you know, if you have a billion valuation on some of these companies, I'm not really sure if that's healthy um, on the long run. Um, I think it could have become really, really big. Um, we made some wrong decisions on the way in terms of strategy, no question about that. Looking at the US, I mean, looking maybe at some pieces about the products, getting too fast, spending too much money on marketing. Um, so I would definitely go slower. Um, I would focus more on the product, um, and I think that would have brought us to definitely more success than it had looking at it now. Right. So there still is a certain regret I can feel. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as you, if you believe in that, and it, it led me as well to the next stage then with Ergo. So it's, there is definitely regret of letting it go, um, but... At the same time, um, I was happy to split as well with it. Right. So it's two-sided. Yeah, probably also from the emotional level. Yeah, and I think it kept me healthy. Um, I think I wouldn't have survived staying in the company with two major shareholders that really, really annoyed everybody that I brought in the company, right. including myself. Um, so I, I couldn't have stand that. You know, people in Switzerland, they don't often talk about money. So I'm not sure how often uh, you share any numbers in that regard. But also comparing the Dine Deal exit, where you were also shareholder, but not the founder, and having Knip as your own company, what are the, the you know, the I don't know how you say that, but like the, the terms, the, the, the amounts that you make there as a founder if you actually exit the companies? I mean, I'm not a founder of Dindia, so I think that's sure. I would let them tell um, <laughs> the, the the numbers. Although I know them and know the background, but it was definitely significant, and I think they have a good living out of it. Um, I mean, looking at Knip uh, and relating as well to my personal wealth, that for me was a low six-digit exit. In mm -hmm. if you consider basically the package plus shares that I still own, obviously. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if you would consider that a success or not. So. Sure. But I think it's good to, to give listeners uh, a certain house number that they can... Uh... Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, one, one thing that I just hold a lecture at ETH Zurich, and I think one thing that I learned really hard way and will always make differently now is I will always cash out in every financial transaction. Um, after a Series A. Um, so I think it just is a fair thing to do for a founder or an entrepreneur to make sure that at a value of 60, 70, 80, 100 million, whatever, you can cash out 0. Point something percent of that. Right. Because there's money coming in and there are very rare phases of a company, even a scale-up, where you actually have money in flow and right. you consider yourself a low salary. So it's like, you know, right. uh, not the best structure on short-term gains, but at least to de-risk a bit, and you will 
still own I mean, a significant amount of the company. Yeah. Um, but cashing out on later stage investments is super important. Yeah. I think that's crucial because of two things to give you a peace of mind financially. Exactly. Spoken. But not too much as exactly. well, right? Yeah. And still having you giving you enough shares that you want to chase the bigger vision. I think yeah. that's incredibly yeah. important. So then after Knip, um, you basically recovered and then found a new position at Ergo as VP of platforms. Mm -hmm. Ergo is a pretty large company. How does an entrepreneur who couldn't stand at a job or a project for more than three years before, always looking for something new to chase and testing out, then suddenly work for a company? Um, I think recovery and learning and education describes it a lot. Um, so I, I knew the um, executive that was running Ergo at that time pretty well um, and had a ton of respect for them. And I, I mean, I had a lot of chances to digest the knip time um, right. and honestly wanted to see the other side of things. Um, so I do not consider myself a person, even now after working there for almost four years, three years to be someone that perfectly fits into a corporate environment. Um, but being in a leadership position, um, I mean, Ergo by itself is 35,000 employees. Um, it's part of Munich Re, which I think in total is 70, 80,000 employees. Um, and leading myself a team of above 200 people in on that platform side from a content and the line management perspective, um, as much as understanding large balance sheets and how decisions are done from an executive level and then being executed in the company, I think you can learn a lot. Um, and I mean, that was the reason why I decided to make that move and go to the other side. Although a lot of people called me crazy at the time, being an eight-year entrepreneur yourself, <laughs> and then decide to, no, maybe not. Um, and I mean, to be fair, Ergo is not the uh, best recognized employer in, I mean, it's insurance, right? So it's pretty boring. People wear ties all the time. They they, Did he also they wear believe, a tie? No, actually, I had. I mean, it's, there, there are kind of fun stories around here. So I was, they, they, they would know who the startup guy is okay. in this organization. You made sure and that this I, is the I case. Made, I would really sure <laughs> that, they, that they know it. Um, but I, I consider that being really valuable time for myself to settle, um, to reflect. You know, I could have reflected earning no money. I could have right. reflected learning in parallel, and I think that was the decision to make. Um, and just restructure and reconsider myself and who I am. And I think that that's what defines me. And the, the fun thing is, I mean, I, I mean, I said I'm not a corporate person and I have very different values than people within this organization. But I always try to make sure that my personal values would be distributed to the employees um, as transparency, which is not something that they really value in large organizations or empathy um, and personal development, which like, yeah, is, is a tough one in organizations, which right. is the reason at the beginning I described a bit the way that it, it always makes sense to found your own company because you can jump over stages and create more value for you yourself as a person. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I've been in the insurance industry, I mean, at that point for four years um, in finance, FinTech for six, seven years. 
and just made sense to see the picture from the other side. And funnily enough, the things that you learn in terms of growth hacks, marketing or product, bringing these to large environments and really trying to leverage them can have such a massive impact to their business um, that I, I was in charge for the um, online business for all Ergo brands in, in Germany. Um, so it's for for big brands, it's Ergo Direct, it's Ergo, it's DKV, and it's DAS. Um, and we actually doubled the revenue year over year and every year. Um, and it has been already on a double million amount when I when yeah. I joined. Talking about leverage. Exactly. And it, they, they just didn't expect that to happen. Um, but it was super interesting to see that somehow at this point, they would consider digital or direct business or however you want to frame it being the future of what they're building. Right. Um, and yeah, I think just super interesting journey. You you see um, the pain points as well and the points where you just cannot go through. I mean, just looking at the product and tech organizations in these environments is, yeah, um, at the moment where you cannot steer the engineers anymore because there is a different company that so it's the engineers and owns the engineers versus the company that actually wants the business. Right. And then being a idiotic CDO in this company, you, I mean, you just do not get through and you won't get shit done. Right. Um, so pros and cons as well on that. Um, but really, really cool experience. And I think we brought a lot of cool guys actually as well to Ergo um, that even now drive the digitization and the transformation. Um, but uh, need to say that that specifically from the high executive level at Ergo, they still consider the digital transformation or direct sales not with the importance that they should do. Okay. Um, and seeing a strategic program like we had in Ergo about two billion for three years, mm -hmm. where two to three hundred million went to. Um, department, departments or projects that I led. Um, yeah, how do you frame it? This amount of money deployed with a positive output, but comparing it to the output that you could have had in a startup being yeah. efficient uh, <laughs> and not being in the need of paying internal daily rates of 1,500 euros per person. Yeah. Um, it's just insane. Yeah. So that's in why corporates buy startups. Yeah, I, I, but on the other hand, I mean, you need to change yourself. It doesn't make sense to either fund fast yes. boats or buy fast boats yeah. and leave them there as long as you don't change yourself. Then you eventually kill them in the long exactly. run, right? Yeah, you will kill them in the short run. I mean, even by putting on your accounting <laughs> standards, um, that's going to blow you up. So yeah. yeah, but I think that's it's interesting to see. So I still believe with the experience that they had with Ergo, that even large organizations, if you transform them the right way, mm -hmm. it can have a tremendous impact right. on a, what is Ergo? I think it's a $28 billion revenue business. Uh, and we even be able to double or triple this one, yeah, that's, um, yeah. which is like... Absolutely. Do you have an example about how you actually used, you know, startup tactic, tactics or things that you learned uh, from running startups to then really leverage and increase the revenue? Yeah, a pretty straightforward one. Um, so Ergo was always really hesitant on running TV ads. 
um, and their TV ads has been solely focused on brand. Okay. And what we actually did is we took all the brand budget that they had, which was significant to digit million a year, plus our marketing budget mm -hmm. and made performance TV ads. So like really people smiling, they, I mean, buy the teeth insurance, it will insure you white teeth and I mean, will prepay for your surgery and stuff like this. Yeah. And this was one of the biggest levers that we've seen it. I mean, just from spending money dumply on a platform that didn't have impact to changing to performance and data-driven oriented marketing and really measuring the impact that these ads had on even all the other channels that we we're running um, was leveraging like crazy. I'm sure that with your package of experience, plenty of experience, you were probably also able to negotiate a good deal on the, on the salary level to recover, but also earn a good amount. I think I had that, yeah. <laughs> Did you also have a, a variable component in there? Yeah. Okay, that's a smart way. Yeah. I mean, not on variable, I mean, you had a bonus, okay. so it was not coupled to revenue. That right. would have been amazing. Yeah, that would, would be crazy. Enough to do that. Um, <laughs> but I think it wouldn't have been gone through compliance. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, being a VP in a large corporate is definitely something you can make a living off. So you basically earned a lot of money there, but then decided to step back into the startup game by... And earn less. And earn less by <laughs> accepting the job at Small PDF as CEO in September 2019. What led to that decision? Because you were basically, I, I assume, um, giving up a large chunk of, of salary. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, I never worked for the salary and I even had the chance at Ergo to go to executive levels. I was in the leadership programs and I think about half a year, maybe a year ago, you would have been promoted to Vorstand. So it's like right. um, the question is at an age of 31 or 32, if that's something that you aspire and I can answer by myself that no, I don't. Um, I'd rather aspire changing things and learning. Um, and I actually know a small PDF and the founders for a very long time. Um, and we've, we basically founded the companies, I mean, as small PDF and Knip at the same time and always as well competed in the top 100 startups. And I mean, the scene is not too big. Right. And um, what happened is that they called, um, I think it was beginning of 2019, something around that. Um, and just, I mean, asked, about the opportunity of small PDF becoming a CEO and as well consulting a bit on the strategy and for what to do with the business. Um, and I think, I mean, just looking a bit at the story of small PDF, so two of the three founders um, founded a different business, which is superb, successful in Berlin uh, with TaxFix, uh, Mattis and Lino, um, about, I think, three years ago, if I recall it correct. At the moment, 250 employees. I think they just raised a 40, you know, 60, I think million, 60 million, 60 million around from index very nice. within Corona crisis. Yes. So um, really admire what they did there and I admire as well of what they've built with small PDF as a basis. Um, though the challenge that small PDF had and still in parts has is um, it is the lead, the world's leading web utility for PDFs. Mm -hmm. um, but as much as I frame that now as, you know, uh, a positive thing, um, it really harms you on the customer side and on the market that you can attract. And at the same time, it can be a superb leverage for a different vision that you 
can come up with or a different strategy. What, for example? I need to deep dive there in a bit. So there, I think the, the challenge that we had at the beginning of Small PDF um, when I involved myself was uh, we had not a too big amount of paying customers. Mm -hmm. And I think at that time, like 15 million monthly active users at the platform. And the difference between them was just so big that it was superb clear that just focusing a bit more on conversion, USPs, values, and pricing yeah. um, can leverage and, and, you know, 5, 10x, whatever the business. And so that was one of the easy, let's, I mean, easy, uh, um, so one of the steps that we defined as the hypothesis of, of driving the business. Um, the second one to answer your question is um, a web utility has said benefits and negative points. The negative points are retention and frequency. So people love small PDF and the service of small PDF because we do magic. They upload a document, we do magic, they download it. The problem is afterwards they download the document and they're gone. Right. So what we at the moment do not do is we, we do not steer the customer journey from the document interaction. We basically just solve one single tiny problem within that interaction. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, usually you don't want to convert. So yeah, let's say for you as a customer, the task is not to convert a PDF to a PPT. You want to do something else with it. You want to edit the PPT or you want to sign the document or whatever. Um, and currently we are solving only a teeny tiny part mm -hmm. of that journey. And the belief that we have is that with the basis, the huge customer base that we have, which at the moment is about 30 million users per month. This is crazy for a Swiss startup. It's mind-blowing. Largest website from Switzerland. Um, we can actually leverage that and build a experience where we are able to cover the customer journeys. Um, as an example, I mean, all your document interactions usually start with the document viewing. Right. So we don't have, um, we had in the past a desktop viewer, but it was really shitty. But we believe by going mobile and enabling us as the core viewer in, on the mobile device from the OS perspective, as much as on a desktop, as much as on the um, browser, will enable us to be the first touch point from you with a document. And then what we need to achieve from there is we need to have functionalities that enable you to to solve your journey issue. So signing the document or editing the document, I mean, or converting, which in most pieces we have already, mm. but customers are not aware. So if they come to small PDF today, they go to compress PDF, they compress and they go. They don't know that we have edit or e-sign or convert or, 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 or um, and that's what we want to solve from a product perspective. And one of the reasons why we as well scaling so fast at the moment, um, from I think about 10 people one and, one and a half years ago to now 55, um, and financing that as a bootstrap company. That's super Growing on the revenue side is at the same time growing the product, which is kind of the biggest challenge I think that we're having at the moment. At the same time, if you talk about this customer journey, I think you recently also introduced a storage option. So all your PDFs or, or documents in general are also stored there. You suddenly also compete with new players, right? Because suddenly if you have a desktop application, you probably compete with Adobe Reader mm -hmm. for the storage part with Dropbox and Google Drive. Where does that take you? I think it will take us to a 
full document management solution mm -hmm. um, and to a point where we need to be aware, as you say, of where do we want to compete and where don't we want to compete and just add functionality that we believe is necessary to the platform. Right. Um, and I think for us, as you mentioned, Dropbox or Box, for example, or G Drive, um, we basically decided that we need a storage functionality to connect our platforms. So when you scan a document on mobile, you should be able to open the document on desktop or on web or wherever you are. Um, so that's the reasoning for the storage. We don't want to become your prior storage option for all your documents. Um, but at the same time, we want to access and partner with the Dropbox or Drive, which we do already, um, by having them as the primary, let's say, document storage solution and accessing the documents and making them interactable in our solution. So that's, I think we, just from a storage perspective, we want to be a bit the top layer um, on top of all the tools, um, rather than a direct competitor to a Dropbox because they're way too big and it's, it doesn't make sense for us to compete. Right. Um, where I clearly see a competition that we are moving towards is, I mean, at the moment, you, Adobe, I think, wouldn't consider us a threat. Mm -hmm. um, I think they would consider us a threat on web, but their core business is desktop. Right. Um, and mobile starts to be one of their really, really well-going businesses. Um, but this is definitely where we are moving. Um, so I think Adobe Document Cloud and everything around that is something that we want to be a threat to, a easier to use threat and a cheaper threat. Um, and I mean, let's see if they then consider us as, as a threat or as the David in the game. And what happens then is you, you're in a comfortable position because you're bootstrapped, you're profitable. And what basically happens is you have many different options. You can say you want to grow faster and take money on. You want to become such a big threat that Adobe wants to buy you, maybe. Or you even do an IPO one day. Where, yeah. where, where do you want to go? What's your goal? I think the goal at the moment is to create more value for the company. Um, so we with all the knowledge and experience that we have <laughs> as a leadership team. And I mean, Christoph here as CEO, worked with Daniel before. Um, so, again, the Daniel Mafia. Yeah, yeah, again, Daniel Mafia. Um, he was actually the head of finance who made the uh, Rainier deal um, at nice. that time. Um, and having as well Mattis and Lino, I mean, two founders and now uh, TaxFix as one of the challenging partners to what we're doing is we try to be really, really ambitious in the goals that we have right. um, on the revenue side, on the customer side, and I think it reflects the progress that we are making as a company. Mm -hmm. But we always ask ourselves at the same time, how fast do we want to be or can we be before destroying processes or culture um, or substances that help us grow further. Um, and I think this is what we really need to be careful. And I mean, we could have grown faster, no question. We could have financed that, um, but we don't want to. Okay. It's really, I think it's the maximum level of health yeah. or the maximum edge level of health that we are at the moment that I, w I personally would allow the company to go. How do you measure that? I can imagine that can be pretty tricky. I think there's no way to, um, I mean, actually there are ways how to quantify that. And one thing that I learned actually from, from Mattis and Lino um, at TaxFix, what they're doing is 
they measure the percentage of new onboarding people to the people that are in the company for a period of longer than X month. Okay. And this gives you a feeling for um, how many uh, people have a stable culture and the learned culture um, and can help to onboard the new people and being that a healthy ratio. Um, so I think there are ways how you can measure that. A lot is feeling. Um, so I'm not really a big fan always of saying, okay, in this way, it should, shouldn't be higher than one, two, five, or stuff like this. Right. Um, I think you can stretch always, but you have to have a good feeling on the organization itself. And there, I mean, I'm, I think I have like 15 Joe fixes a week just with people that even I don't lead from a line perspective, just to get a feel for what's happening in the company. Um, and in the end, this the, the whole conversation obviously is around growth from a personal perspective for this person and about health from a company perspective. Got it. You also mentioned the company valuation that you want to grow and drive. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, why do you want to do it? And secondly, what are the different points where you can actually influence and increase it? Um, so I wouldn't necessarily talk about valuation because that can be volatile. Okay. Um, and I'm just looking at Corona now, what happened in yeah. uh, first to second week of March was valuation dropping by 30-40%. They are back off now to normal levels, but um, I think this is not what we care about. I think we really care about is value and sustainability of the business. And that's, I mean, there are a lot of things involved. You have the top line and you have the top line growth. So ensuring that you have a stable growth rate, which compares what ideally is above average from a market perspective makes a lot of sense. Um, Looking at the bottom line, having an EBITDA, which allows you all cash flow. So depending on what the measures are that you have, for us, it is a lot targeted towards EBITDA um, as a SaaS company. Um, it just helps us to maintain a level of efficiency um, that we believe we need to have. So we want to stay lean and keeping the growth rate fast, even having high profitability means that I mean, we can allow ourselves to invest but force ourselves at the same time to be efficient. Right. Um, and then I mean, there's obviously rather an organizational aspect to it, um, which is we want to be sure as a company that we can grow to the next step that we have in mind and have solved most of the issues on the path of the organization. So if I have people at the moment or um, VPs or head-offs that have seven plus direct reports, I definitely would consider to restructure these departments just to make sure that if we double in people or if we add more developers or add more product teams or whatever you come up with and have a strategy as a company, right. it will hold. Um, so there's nothing that breaks in terms of too much direct leaderships or enough senior people in the important leadership positions um, that have a lot of line management to do. Um, or crucial functionalities as a head of finance, for example, for a startup in our size um, that are placed by people with experience that have been there and done that. So they've led companies up to and above the 100 million revenue. So I think these are all pieces to consider um, by building, on the one hand, a healthy organization, and on the other hand, a valuable asset yeah. internally and everything that is valuable to you as an organization drives the value 
in the valuation in the end of the company. Now we talked about a lot about your personal story, about the different startups and companies that you've been involved with. You made some money along the way, personally. Um, I'm also wondering on a personal level, what do you do? Do you invest in anything beyond the startups or the companies that you work with? Do, do I have to disclaim now that everything that I'm saying is not an investment <laughs> advice? We're not in the US. Yeah, so I mean, obviously I'm investing. I think I'm on the investment side. I'm usually the zero or one person. So either I believe in something and then usually go all in or do a serious investment okay. um, versus if I don't believe in it, if I don't see value on the, on the long run, I don't do anything. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm currently just from the position of where I'm not the best business angel, although I could afford it, or I'm seeing and reviewing as well angel investments. Um, but I don't consider myself being good at that yet. So I don't do it too often. Okay. Um, what I do, though, is stock investments, um, real estate investments, and um, for myself, blockchain slash crypto investments as well. Yeah. So that was probably the longest episode we ever recorded, but it was so interesting. You have so much to tell. And that was really because a lot of I fun. I hope that it, it was valuable as well. A hundred percent. So yeah, really, really appreciated the conversation. And just one last question for you. Are there any resources or gadgets that you can recommend? That could be books, resources block, or uh, gadgets, podcasts, um, newsletters. I mean, there's definitely some things that I listen to. I mean, commuting myself, I have some time um, to get insights. Um, I really admire OMR's podcast um, just for the sake of who they have and always adding a different perspective to things. Um, Tarek Müller is their resident. Yeah, I mean, there's some that they have. So I, I really... Um, how's the, the other one called? I think Alexander... So they, they definitely have really, really cool resident right. um, podcasters or people that have opinions, which I admire. So I don't need yeah. to be or have the same opinion of someone, but I admire if someone is able to argue through his or her opinion. Right. Um, yeah, so that one definitely. What I can always recommend, and I'm really doing myself a lot, is coaching. Um, not coaching people, but having coaches professional coaches that help you to run through hard times. So whenever you have a tough decision to do or a tough situation at the company or even want to develop yourself, there is someone you can challenge with. Where do you find the right people for that? I mean, there are a lot of coaches out, outside. So I, I have a very long-term relationship with, with my personal coach, um, but I'm trying out dif different ones from time to time to get a different perspective. And right. usually they have different focus areas. So some are focused more on body language and others are more focused on, you know, personal growth yeah. and mindset. Um, and there are the ones that are more focused on business decisions and process. So I think whatever you want to improve or whether, wherever you have challenges with, um, you will find someone that, that I think, I wouldn't say help you necessarily because as with everything, they will have opinions and they will try to lead you to a point. Don't believe that always and make your own opinion on what they're trying to achieve with you. And I think this is the way how you can define yourself better and become more confident in what you're doing. But I think that's a very underrated uh, source totally. of support. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And just challenging ideas, thoughts, situations, 
um, and getting a third-party opinion from the outside right. is really, really helpful. Should they have like any startup relations or background? No, or no. Would you really. even recommend not having that? Not necessarily. So I think it doesn't matter. Um, there are good coaches that run startups before. I mean, you can have even your own mentor if you want to have that. I'm not a big fan of that because it's usually, you know, the daddy and son relationship. I'm not yeah. a big, big fan of this. Like, yeah, I'm your, I'm your mentor. I'm making you beg. Um, but I think having an eye-to-eye -eye conversation with, with coaches makes a lot of sense. Dennis, thank you so much. That was not only impressive, but also a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for taking the time and sharing these valuable insights and lessons. Thanks for having me. We would like to thank our sponsor, SBB Startup. The Swiss Railways launched their own startup program, so no matter if you're already an established company or just have an idea, they are eager to hear from you if you think that your company or your idea is a good fit to the Swiss Railways. You can get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com and they will support you with internal connections, with coaching, and also are very interested in launching a pilot project with you. So if you think that your product or your idea or your company have the potential to collaborate with the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. Next week, we will already be back with an all-new episode of The Swisspreneur Show, so we hope to see you again then for a new episode.